0: Rudolf Steiner This is a uh, reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. And uh, as all these are, this is translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 14, given in Berlin on the 26th of January, 1909. Let us continue with our observations whose aim is to enable us to understand the real nature of the human being and his task in the world from an ever-deepening perspective. You will recall that in one of the lectures given here this winter, I spoke of the four primary ways in which human disease can manifest, saying that we could only later come to discuss what we can call the real karmic causes of disease. Today we will consider, to some extent at least, this karmic causation of disease. On that previous occasion, describing the human being in terms of four aspects, physical body, ether body, astral body and I, we simultaneously offered a certain overview of diseases such that each of these aspects of the human being comes to expression in particular organs and organ systems of the physical body itself. Thus, the I within the physical body, capital I, comes largely to expression in the blood, the astral body in the nervous system, and the ether body in all that we regard as the glandular system and what belongs to this. The physical body expresses itself as itself, as physical body. We then presented the diseases that originate in the I as such, and which therefore come to outward physical manifestation as irregularities of blood functions. We indicated that conditions caused by astral body irregularities express themselves as irregularities of the nervous system, while causes originating in the ether body express themselves in the glandular system. Then we saw how diseases we must regard as originating in the physical body are caused primarily by external factors. In all this, though, we only considered disease in relation to everything that occurs in a single life, between birth and death. But someone able to draw on spiritual science when considering what unfolds in the universe will have a sense that the illnesses a person suffers must be connected in some way with his karma, that is, with the great law of causation involving spiritual connections between different incarnations. Yet the ways of karma are very convoluted, very diverse, and if we wish to understand anything at all about karmic causes and contexts, we will have to enter fully into these subtle interrelationships. Today we will discuss a little of what people initially find it most interesting to know, how diseases are connected with causes which a person himself initiated in former lives. But to do so, by way of introduction, we must first say a few words about the workings of karma within human biography. We will need to mention some things that most of you already know from other lectures, since it is important to remind ourselves very clearly how karmic causes become effects working over from one life into another. Here we must again recall in a few words what happens to us during the period following death. We know that on passing through the gate of death, the experiences we initially have are due to our being for the first time in a position we were not in during our lifetime. We have no physical body, but our eye and astral body are still connected with the ether body. We have laid aside our physical body. During life, this only occurs in exceptional instances, as has often been mentioned. During life, in sleep, when we lay aside the physical body, the ether body is also laid aside with it, and so this connection of I, astral body, and ether body is only present for a while after death, and only for a few days. We have also spoken of the experiences during this time that follow immediately after death, Describing how we feel ourselves becoming ever larger, as though growing beyond the spatial bounds we previously occupied, and encompassing all things. We spoke of how the image of our past life stands before us in a great panorama. Then a period follows, varying individually and taking a matter of days in our time reckoning, the laying aside of the second corpse, the ether body, which is then absorbed into the universal ether. The only exceptions to this are the instances we have referred to when discussing delicate, intimate questions of reincarnation, when the ether body is, in a sense, preserved for subsequent use, but an essence remains of this ether body as the fruit of what we experienced and underwent during our life. We live on after death in this life, governed, by the coexistence of the I with the astral body, now without any connection to the physical body. The time follows, which we have become accustomed to calling Kamaloka in spiritual scientific literature, and have also often referred to as the period of growing beyond a connection with the physical body or with physical existence in general, of shedding the habit of it. We know that after passing through the gateway of death our astral body initially still possesses all the powers that were present in it at the moment of death. We have only laid aside the physical body the instrument of enjoyment and action. We no longer possess it but do still have the astral body as the bearer of passions, drives, desires and instincts. After death, out of habit you might say we still long for precisely the same things that we longed for during life. In life, of course, we satisfy our longings and desires through the instrument of the physical body. Without this instrument, after death, we lack all possibility of satisfying such things. We experience this as a kind of thirst for physical life until we have become accustomed to living only in the spiritual world as such and possessing only what derives from the world of spirit. Until we have learned this, we sojourn in the period we refer to as that of weaning from our habits, the period of Kamaloka. In describing the very distinctive course of this process, we saw that human life runs backward during this time. This is extremely hard for someone new to spiritual science to understand we pass backward through the Kamalaka period, which takes around a third of the length of our previous life. Let us assume that someone dies at the age of forty. He passes through all the events he experienced in life in reverse sequence. Thus he first experiences what happened when he was thirty-nine, followed by thirty-eight, thirty-seven, thirty-six, and so on. He passes through his life backward to the moment of his birth. On this is based the beautiful Christian saying, referring to the moment when human beings re-enter the world of spirit, or the kingdom of heaven, quote, except ye become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven, close quote. In other words, we live our way back to the time of childhood and re-experience it. And having completed this reverse journey, we enter Devakan, or the kingdom of heaven and there spend the rest of our time excuse me spend the rest yeah, of our time in the spiritual world this is hard to picture since we are so used to the course of time on the physical plane being an absolute reality it takes some effort therefore for us to find our way into such ideas but this gradually becomes possible now we must call to mind what we actually do in kamaloka Naturally we could offer many varied descriptions, but today let us focus on something that relates directly to our question about the karmic cause of illnesses. What will be said here should certainly not be seen as the only mode of experiencing kamaloka, but as one among many. First we can illustrate how this Kamaloka period is used to serve our future by imagining that the person who died at the age of forty did something at the age of twenty that harmed another. Whenever we do something that harms someone else, this has a certain significance for the whole of life. Anything we do that harms a fellow human being or another creature, or the world in general, represents a developmental hindrance, an obstacle to our developmental progress. This is the whole meaning, in fact, of our human pilgrimage. The founding power of the human soul, passing from one incarnation to another, is at all times geared to progressive development and strives for higher evolution. But as we evolve, we repeatedly place obstacles in our own path, as it were. If this fundamental power, which is what seeks to re-spiritualize the soul, were active on its own, a very brief period on earth would be sufficient for us. But in that case, the whole of earthly evolution would have taken a quite different course, and the purpose of it would not be achieved. It is only by placing obstacles in our own path that we gain strength and gather experience. By placing obstacles in our own path, and then eradicating and overcoming these again, will we become the strong being that we must become by the end of earthly evolution. It is absolutely part of the meaning of earth evolution for us to place obstacles in our own path. And if we did not have to acquire the strength to remove the hindrances again, we would not develop the strength we need. In other words, the world would be deprived altogether of the strength which we develop in this way. We have to overlook entirely the good and bad connected with such hindrances. From the very beginning, the wise guidance of the world sought to enable human beings to place obstacles in their own path so that they might remove them again and thus develop the great strength for what would come later in the world. One might even say that this wise guidance allowed the human being to be evil, gave him the opportunity to be so, to do harm, so that by redressing the harm, overcoming the evil, he would grow into a stronger being during karmic evolution than he otherwise would have become if he had effortlessly attained his goal. This is how we must regard the meaning and justification of such obstacles and hindrances. So when, after death, someone lives backward through his life in Kamaloka, and arrives at any harm he has done, say an injury he did to someone when he was twenty. He experiences this harm in the same way that he re-experiences the joy and goodness which he gave others. But in this case, he experiences, within his own astral body, the pain he inflicted. So let us assume he struck someone when he was twenty and the other suffered the pain of this blow. As he lives back through his experiences, he feels in his astral body the very pain he caused, which the other experienced when he received the blow. In the world of spirit, therefore, we pass objectively through everything that we ourselves caused in the outer world. By this means we absorb the strength, the tendency to redress this pain in one of our subsequent incarnations. In retracing our experience after death, we register in our own astral body what it felt like to be on the receiving end of what we did. And we also register how, in doing this, we place the stone in the path of our further development. The stone must be removed, otherwise we cannot advance beyond it. At this moment we form the intention, the tendency to remove the stone. And so when we have passed through the Kamaloka period we actually arrive in the period of our childhood with pure intentions that is with the intention of removing all the hindrances we ourselves created in life. The fact that we bear these intentions within us leads to the unique configuration of each person's future biography. Let us assume that at the age of twenty B did A an injury. Now he must experience the pain of it himself, and he takes with him the intention to make amends to A in a future life, in the physical world, since that is where the injury occurred. The fact that he bears within him the strength, that is, the will to make amends, creates a bond of attraction between B and A, to whom the injury was done. In the next life, this bond of attraction leads them together again. The mysterious power of attraction that leads people together in life originates in what was absorbed in Kamaloka and the powers developed there. During life, we are led to the people to whom we need to make reparation or with whom we have had anything at all to do by virtue of what we underwent in Kamaloka. Now, you can imagine that what we absorbed as the Kamaloka powers of redress for one life cannot by any means always make amends in one single further life. It may be that we formed a large number of connections with people in one life and that the subsequent Kamaloka period gave us the opportunity to encounter these people again. But it also depends on these others whether we again form connections with them in our subsequent life. It can be spread over many lifetimes. In one life we need to make redress for this, in another for something else, and so on. We should not think that we can immediately make amends in our next life for everything in this one. This depends on whether the other person also develops a corresponding attraction for us in his soul. Let us now examine the workings of karma in more detail in relation to a particular instance. In Kamaloka we form the intention of carrying out something in our next life or one of our next lives. The powers implanted in our soul remain there, do not disappear again. We are reborn with all the powers that we have absorbed. This is completely unavoidable. Now in life we are not just faced with things that must be done to make karmic redress, although what I am about to say can also relate to that. We have placed various kinds of obstacles in our path, have lived in a one-sided way, have failed to make proper use of our life, have pursued only one or another sort of enjoyment, one or another kind of work. In other words, we have let other opportunities that life offered pass us by. Thus, failing to develop other capacities, this too awakens karmic causation in us in Kamaloka. Thus, we enter into our next life, are born aged not. I'm not sure quite what that means, readers aside. Thus, we enter into our next life, are born aged not. I suppose age zero. Now, let us assume that we live to the age of ten, at twenty. In our soul lie all the Kamaloka powers we absorbed and these emerge when they have grown ripe for life. At a certain period of our life an inner need or urge will invariably arise to enact such an impulse. Let us assume that at age 20 an inner urge arises in us to perform a particular deed because we absorbed this power in Kamaloka. Let us say with this since it is the simplest example, an inner urge arises to make amends to someone. The person in question is there, the bond of attraction has led us to him. External factors certainly allow us to do this. But a hindrance can still exist. The redress might demand a deed of us that is beyond the capacities of our organism. Our constitution and organism is also dependent on the forces of heredity, And this always causes disharmony in every life. When we are born, we are, on the one hand, embedded in the forces of heredity. The physical body and ether body inherit the qualities that the genetic line can bequeath us. This legacy is, of course, not entirely devoid of all outward connection with our soul's karmic intentions. You see, as our soul descends from the world of spirit... It is drawn to the parents, to the family, where qualities are passed down that are most closely related to the soul's needs. But they are never fully commensurate with these needs. The body cannot match this. There is always a certain discrepancy between inherited forces and what the soul bears within it from its past life. And ultimately it is a question of whether the soul is strong enough to overcome all resistance, present in the genetic line, and can elaborate the organism throughout life in such a way as to overcome what is not suited to it. People vary a great deal in this respect. There are souls whose past lives have made them very strong. Such a soul must be born into the body best fitted for it, but not into a perfectly suitable body. The soul can be strong enough, more or less, to overcome everything that does not accord with it. But this may not always be the case. Let us examine this in detail, considering our brain in this respect. We inherit this instrument of our life of ideas and thinking from our ancestors as an external instrument. Its finer curvatures and convolutions have been shaped in a particular way, in the line of descent. To a certain degree the soul's inner power will always be able to overcome what does not suit it and adapt its tool to its own forces, but only up to a certain point. A stronger soul can do this more, a weaker soul less. And if prevailing circumstances even mean it is impossible for our soul forces to overcome the brain's resistant disposition and organization, then we cannot properly use this instrument. Our incapacity to make full use of this instrument manifests as a mental deficiency, or so-called mental illness. When the powers of the soul are not strong enough to overcome certain traits of our organism, what we call a melancholic temperament can also develop. So, now, at the midpoint of incarnation, things are different at the beginning and end of life. We always have in us a certain discrepancy between the instrument and the soul forces, and this is invariably the secret cause of inner ambivalence and disharmony in human nature. Everything a person will often consider to be the cause of his dissatisfaction is usually only a mask. In truth, the causes lie elsewhere, as I have just suggested and so we see how the soul living on from incarnation to incarnation interacts with what we receive through the light of heredity now let us imagine that we have been reborn and that at the age of 20 our soul feels the urge to make amends for some action or other the person in question is also there but our soul is incapable of overcoming the inner resistance in a way that could allow the deed to be performed. After all, we always have to set our powers in motion in order to perform any action. People usually do not notice that something is occurring within them and do not initially need to notice. The following may certainly happen. A person lives in the world. In his soul, twenty years after his birth, lives the urge and drive to make amends in some way. The possibility of doing so exists, and external circumstances allow it. But inwardly he is incapable of using his organs in a way that would enable him to realize the action he should carry out. A person need not know anything of what has been said here, but he will become aware of its effect, which arises as some form of illness. And here we find the karmic connection between what happened in a former life and illness. Given this spiritual causation, the whole disease process will be such as to render the person capable of making amends, of strengthening him sufficiently to do so, whenever circumstances allow this again. Thus, at the age of twenty, we may be unable to perform this or that restorative action, but the drive or urge is there, and the soul desires to do it. What does the soul do instead? It battles with its unyielding organ, taking up arms against it, and the result is that it lays waste to it, as it were, destroys it. The organ that ought really to be used to perform an outward deed is destroyed under the influence of these forces, and this leads in turn to a reaction process which we can now regard as a process of healing. The organ's powers must be invoked to rebuild the organ. This organ that has been laid waste, because it was not as it should have been to allow the person to undertake the work he needed to, is reconfigured through the illness in line with the soul's requirements in order to perform the deed in question. In some circumstances, it will be too late after the illness. For the deed to be accomplished, but the soul has now taken up a quite different power, so that when it reincarnates, it will configure the organ through growth and overall development to enable it to accomplish the deed. Thus, illness can endow us in one life with the strength and capacity to realize our karmic obligations in the next. Here we have a mysterious connection between illness, which is basically a process that furthers upward evolution, a karmic connection between illness and this ascending evolution. In order for the soul to develop the strength to allow an organ to be configured in the way necessary for its use, this unsuitable organ must be broken down and rebuilt by soul forces. Here we meet a law that applies to human biography and that must be roughly defined as follows. We need to acquire strength by gradually overcoming resistance we encounter in the physical world. Basically, we have gained all the powers we possess by overcoming one or another kind of resistance in former lives. The capacities we have today result from our illnesses in former lives. To be quite clear about this, let us imagine that a soul is not yet capable enough of using the midbrain. By what means can it acquire the capacity to make proper use of the midbrain? Only by previously observing this incapacity, breaking down the organ, and then reconfiguring it. As the soul reshapes it, it learns to acquire the specifically oriented power that it needs we possess an, as capacity everything which we ourselves have in the past undertaken through destruction and re-synthesis this has been sensed by all world faiths that assigned a very significant being to the process of destruction and recreation in india religion excuse me in indian religion shiva embodies the powers that preside over destruction and recreation Here already we have one of the ways in which you can say that processes of illness are karmically induced. Something like this, whereby diseases appear in a more general form, certainly obtains for the processes in which the more general nature of the human being is involved, as opposed to the human individuality. For instance, we see the typical childhood illnesses arise at certain times. These are nothing other than an expression of the fact that the child learns to inwardly master certain organs in childhood illnesses, and will then be able to govern them in all following incarnations. We should regard illnesses as a process that renders us stronger and more capable. Here we come to a quite different way of thinking about illnesses. Naturally, we should not apply the same explanation to someone who is run over by a train. The explanation for all such things must invariably be sought in a realm separate from disease, separate from what I have just characterized. However, there is another instance of karmic causation of illness that is no less interesting, and that we can also only understand if we characterize life's circumstances in somewhat more detail. Imagine that you learn some kind of lesson in life. First you have to learn it, since the most important acquirements in life are certainly first learned. The process of learning is an absolutely necessary one. But this is never the whole story, since learning itself is only the most external process. Having integrated something into ourselves, having learned whatever the lesson is, we still have a long way to go before experiencing all that these lessons must fulfill in us. We are born into life with very specific capacities, partly acquired through heredity and partly through our former lives. The scope of our capacities is limited. In each life we increase the sum of our experiences. What we experience and undergo is not connected with us in the same way as what we bring into our life as innate temperament, natural predisposition, and so forth. What we have learned during life, initially as memory and habit, is more loosely connected with us. In life, therefore, it also appears in isolated aspects. Only after life, does it emerge in the ether body, the great memory tableau. We must now incorporate it into us. It must be added to our being. So let us assume that we have learned something in our life and are then reborn. Due to heredity or other circumstances, also perhaps because our learning did not develop harmoniously, and though we learned one thing or another, We did not learn what we needed to bring our learning to full fruition. It may very well be that when we are reborn, we will develop what we learned in a particular direction, but not in another. Let us assume we learned something in one life that in the next required a particular part of our brain to be organized in this or that fashion, or our blood circulation to run in a certain way. And then imagine also that we did not learn the other things necessary to complement this. This will not by any means necessarily lead directly to any apparent defect in us. We have to progress erratically in our lives, experiencing and coming to perceive that we have pursued something in a one-sided way. Now, when we are reborn with the fruits of what we learned, we lack the capacity to elaborate it all in ourselves in a way that allows it to be realized and or excuse me or enacted for instance someone may even have gained some degree of initiation into the great secrets of existence during one incarnation when reborn these powers implanted in him will seek to emerge but let us assume he has been unable to develop certain powers that can then produce the appropriate harmony in his organs. At a certain point in his life, what he previously learned will certainly seek to emerge. But he lacks an organ that would be necessary to realize this. What is the consequence of this? An illness must develop, one whose karmic cause may lie very, very deep. And again, we can say that a part of the organism must be broken down and reconfigured. Then, in this reconfiguration, the soul senses the new direction for the right powers and takes with it this sense of what the right powers are. If this originates in such learning or even initiation, however, it is usually the case that the fruits appear in this same life. Here an illness manifests in a way that enables the soul to sense that it lacks something specific. And then, for instance, immediately after the illness, something can arise that would not otherwise have been accessible to us. It may be that in the previous life we could have risen to a certain degree of spiritual enlightenment, but now a node or point in the brain has not opened. We have not developed the power allowing us to open it. It is then inevitable that this node must be destroyed, and this can lead to a grave illness. Then the relevant part is reformed, and as this happens the soul senses the powers necessary for it to open, and subsequently the destined enlightenment occurs. We can certainly regard processes of illness as significant heralds, Here, however, we encounter things that our mundane world dismisses out of hand. Nevertheless, it is not an uncommon experience for someone to feel continual dissatisfaction, as though something exists in the soul that cannot emerge and makes life more or less inwardly impossible. Then a grave illness arrives, the overcoming of which leads to entirely new conditions, acting like redemption. A node is opened and the organ can be used. The sense of dissatisfaction was due only to the fact that the organ could not be used. In fact, people have many such nodes in in their current cycle of life, and they cannot all be opened. This is not invariably a matter of gaining enlightenment, but can manifest in many secondary life processes. Thus we find ourselves confronting the need to develop this or that aspect, and can see that a cause of illnesses lies here too in the karmic chain of causation. This is why we should never really be entirely satisfied with a merely trivial view of illness as something we attract to ourselves through karma. This is because we ought not merely to consider the karma of the past, thus seeing an illness as a conclusion, but instead regard illness, which is only a secondary phenomenon, as the developing cause of our future creative power and capacity. We misunderstand illness and karma entirely if we always only consider the past, thereby making karma a more or less completely random law of destiny. Karma becomes a law of action, of life's fruitfulness, however, if we are able to look through the lens of present karma into the future. All this points to a great law that holds sway in our human existence. And in order to gain at least a faint intimation of this great law, we will return to it later and describe it in more detail, let us cast our gaze back to the time when we first arose in our present human form in the Lemurian era. At that time we descended from divine spiritual existence into the external existence we know today, first embodying ourselves and thus embarking on the path of outward incarnations, then passing onward from one incarnation to the next, through to the present time. Before we embarked on our incarnations, the opportunity we have today for implanting illnesses in ourselves did not yet exist. Not until we acquired the capacity to regulate our relationship with our surroundings did it become possible for us to go astray, inducing mistaken inner organ configurations and implanting in ourselves the predisposition for disease. Prior to this, it was impossible for the human being to produce processes of disease in himself when everything was still subject to the sway of divine powers and forces, before our lives were in our own hands, no potential for illness has as yet existed. Then this potential for illness developed. Where will we best learn to discover the paths of healing, therefore? We will learn this best if we are able to look back to times when divine spiritual powers worked into the human being, bestowing upon him absolute health unsullied by any possibility of disease, in other words, before we first began to incarnate. Those who had some insight into these things always harbored such feelings. From this starting point, try to engage deeply with mythological narratives and images at present I am not even referring to the true source of healing lore in the Egyptian rites of Hermes, but only to the Greek and Roman Asclepius rites. One can say that Asclepius, the son of Apollo, is the father of Greek physicians. And what does the Greek myth tell us about him? As a youth, Asclepius's father brought him to the mountains to be apprenticed to the centaur Chiron. This centaur Chiron instructs Asclepius, the father of medicine, in the healing powers of herbs and other medicinal forces to be found on the earth. What kind of creature is the centaur Chiron? He is described as one who existed before Lemurian times, before humanity's descent to earth, a being who is half man, half animal. This myth conceals the fact that Asclepius was initiated in the relevant mysteries into the great powers of health, the great health-bestowing powers, before human beings embarked on their first incarnation. And so we find an expression in Greek myth of this great law, this great spiritual reality, which is of such interest to us in relation to humanity's earthly pilgrimage. Myths are in reality images of life's profoundest relationships, and will reveal their depths once we get a little further than the ABC of spiritual science. Myths particularly are images of the deepest secrets of human existence. If all of life is considered from this perspective, then all of life, likewise, will be seen in its light and spiritual science will increasingly become something and we must increasingly emphasize this that will find its way into ordinary daily life people will come to live sp- excuse me people will come to live spiritual science thus realizing what has in fact been the guiding aim of spiritual science from the very outset spiritual science will become the great impulse for humanity's ascent For the true redemption and progress of humanity. The end of Lecture 14.